I can invite you to open your Bibles now to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 as we continue on with a salutation to this great book. Romans chapter 1. The first seven verses, of course, uh, provide the greeting or the, the first part of the introduction to this book. And it goes like this. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if that sounded like a fairly complicated sentence or two to you, don't feel bad. They're two of the most complicated sentences in the entire book of Romans. So we, it's interesting in that we have some of the hardest exegetical issues to deal with right up here at front. But if we are patient and we unpack them, we're going to see that these are principles. There are principles in this first opening paragraph that are life-changing principles, if we just really get them down. So hang in there with me, and, and we'll unpack this sentence or two, and I think it'll be something that'll change your life. I know it has changed many other people's lives as they've gone through the study of Romans. The introductory paragraph, which functions as a greeting, is more extensive than we find in Paul's other letters. The reason for this, we've said before, is probably... Uh, that Paul never visited there. These are new people to him. The church was, was likely formed by Paul's converts. So a few of the people in Rome would have known Paul. But on the whole, uh, they had never had the pleasure of personally meeting him. So in this opening paragraph, Paul, under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, introduces himself and then his subject in just a few sentences. We talked about the introduction of himself last week. This week we'll talk about the introduction of the subject of the book of Romans. The salutation then can be departed, divided into three parts. First, Paul introduces himself. We studied that last week in, in verse 1. Tonight, Paul introduces his subject, which is the gospel, in chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. And then finally, Paul invokes a blessing on his readers in chapter 1, verse 7. If you recall back on our study last week, Paul introduced himself using three adjectival phrases. First, he was a slave of Christ, or a servant of Jesus Christ. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he had been set apart for the gospel of God. Now, that's the first time that this phrase comes up, but it sets the tone for the entire letter. And we want to, we want to understand this phrase, the gospel of God, as being God's gospel, as opposed to Paul's gospel, or Bruce's gospel, or John's gospel, or anybody else's gospel. This is God's gospel. Paul is a mediator of God's truth. To God's people. Paul's a mediator of God's truth to God's people. It's not Paul's truth. It's God's truth. And Paul wants us to know that right up front. Now, verses 2 through 6, verse 1 introduced Paul himself. Verses 2 through 6 introduces the primary subject of the epistle, and that is God's gospel, or if you prefer, the gospel. The gospel, the Greek word for gospel means simply good news. The gospel was promised to mankind long before the time of Paul. In fact, even back to the Garden of Eden, 
The gospel was promised in seed form, no pun intended, because in Genesis 3.15, which most people feel like is the first mention of the gospel in the scriptures, the seed of the woman was promised, and the seed of the woman would ultimately conquer the seed of the serpent. And so in seed form, we have the gospel even way back then. So this is promised a long time before the Apostle Paul. Again, he's telling us, this is not new with me. This is something that's been around a long time. I just want to explain it to you. And I want to explain it in such a way that your life changes because of it. And someone might object and say, well, I've already accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can the gospel of Jesus Christ, or my understanding of that, or even a deeper understanding, how can that help me at all? Well, hang on, and you'll see it'll help you a lot. Good news, God's good news, is that although we were condemned from birth, and thus separated from God because of our association with Adam, and though we commit acts of personal sin throughout our lives consistent with that association, God has not turned his back on us. That's the good news. Sometimes we wonder, well, when we give the gospel, is there a bad news part to the good news? You know, is, there a bad, is there a bad news part to the good news of Jesus Christ? Think about that for a bit, and we'll, we'll see as we go through this gospel that Paul does. He tells us every bit of the bad news. I read on the Fox News website just last week that there's a church in Houston, which is one of the largest churches in terms of attendance in the United States on a weekly basis, and he refuses, refuses to say anything about sin in the church service. Because he said people don't come to hear about that. Well, Paul did. There is good news, and the good news is that God did something about the problem. But there has to be some sort of pre-understanding of the problem, or else you wouldn't realize it's good news. So that in our gospel presentation, there will be times where we have to give the bad news first. In fact, Larry Moyer does exactly that. He's got a bad news, good news approach. He says, this is the bad news, but the good news is this, and that is God didn't turn your back on you, and he sent his son to die for you, and what you need to do is trust him for eternal life. Now, the gospel, this is so important in our understanding of the book of Romans. So listen so carefully, so carefully to this right now. The gospel... The gospel is essentially about a person. The gospel is essentially about a person and a subsequent act of that person. The good news is essentially a person, and that person, of course, is Jesus Christ. Now, if I was to ask you, and I'm not going to do it for time's sake and for organization's sake, but if I was to say, I want you to give me the gospel... What most of us would do, probably me included, I would say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Or we may say, The gospel is, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Of the two, John 3.16 is probably closer to what Paul's talking about when he uses the term gospel. See, in Acts 16.31, those are Paul's words as well. That's how we take advantage of, of the good news. See, the, there's a gospel for everybody, but not everybody takes advantage of the gospel. So I want to make sure we clarify our terms before we ever get into what's going on in Romans. The good news is that God did not leave us in just condemnation without any hope at all. The good news is that He sent His Son to die as our substitute. Now, how we take advantage of that good news is to exercise faith alone in Christ alone. 
So we have to be careful with how we define our terms. We want to use the term in the same way that Paul's going to use it here. So the gospel is essentially about a person and an act. The perfect person of the Son of God and the perfect act of love in the Son's substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. The fact that we were born physically alive but spiritually dead is bad news. The fact that God did something about it to make it possible for us to reestablish a positive relationship with Him is good news. And notice I said a positive relationship because we all have a relationship with God. It's just the bad news is that some of us have a, a negative relationship with Him and we don't want that. Even the unbeliever in hell will have a relationship with God. It'll just be a bad relationship that they'll have. So the gospel is more than just simply the phrase, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's how one should respond to the gospel. But the gospel is actually the entirety of the good news about Jesus Christ. If the gospel was a matter of divine promise, and it was, if it was repeated by prophet after prophet through the long course of the ages, which it was, and if the fulfillment of that promise was the greatest event in the history of mankind, which it certainly was, how immensely important this good news or gospel ought to be to us. If it's the most important event in the history of mankind, then it should be immensely important to us. None of us would doubt that the gospel was important to us before we were saved. But some believers place very little importance on understanding and appreciating the doctrine of soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation or the gospel, after salvation. They figure once they're saved, the doctrines of salvation hold no more importance for them. But this is a miscalculation of enormous proportions. There will be very little spiritual growth for the believer without an understanding and an appreciation of grace. And there can be no understanding and appreciation of grace apart from the doctrines of soteriology. There will be very little comfort in times of suffering without an understanding of divine love. And there can be but limited comprehension of love, divine love, apart from a comprehension of the doctrines of soteriology. The reason why the book of Romans has so profoundly affected the lives of so many of God's faithful servants is that it makes God's good news deeply relevant to the moment-by-moment moment function of the lives of believers after salvation. Since that's one of my primary premises tonight, allow me to say it just one more time and track along with me when I do. The reason why the book of Romans has so profoundly affected the lives of so many of God's faithful servants is that it makes God's good news deeply relevant to the moment-by-moment -moment function of the lives of believers after we're saved. Since God has lovingly provided salvation for helpless sinners through His Son, we should accept that sacrifice by faith and express our gratitude to God by dedicating our lives to Him. You, you want to know what the, the motivation for service is? An understanding of soteriology, an understanding of the good news. Without that, you're going to have a motivation, but it won't be the motivation God wants you to have. That's what the book of Romans is going to be about. We're going to get into all kind of heavy theology. 
But don't get sidetracked by even the term heavy theology. This heavy theology has incredible applications to us today as believers. So, verses 2 through 6 teach that God's gospel was first promised in the Old Testament, promised in the Old Testament, second, fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, and third, it was offered to the world. It was promised in the Old Testament, it was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, and it was offered to the world. As we go through this, I want to tell you what my, I want to be up front with you, and tell you that my primary purpose tonight is to assure you that what God has promised will come to pass. And also to encourage you that God will be no less faithful to the subsequent promises that he's made to you as his child than he was to the primary promise that allowed you to become his child in the first place. If God was faithful to the promise of bringing the Savior, bringing the Mashiach or the Messiah or the servant of the Lord, if he was faithful through all those centuries, didn't forget his promise, and, and, and worked mankind, the entirety of human history, so that the Lord would come at precisely the fullness of time, if he was faithful to that, if he was faithful to get you into his family, he's not going to let you down once you're in it. So when Paul talks about that he promised this beforehand, in the Holy Scriptures, don't let that just pass you by as some sort of almost frivolous introductory phrase. This is serious theology that has serious applications to the way that we live tonight and the comfort that we can have tonight with the problems that we face. Now, first, the gospel was promised in the Old Testament. Look at verse 2. Well, actually, look at the last phrase of verse 1. The Apostle Paul was set apart for God's gospel or for the gospel of God. Everything that happens in verses 2 through 6, okay, everything that happens in the verses 2 through 6 is going to be related to that phrase, the gospel of God. So Paul is going to introduce his subject for the entire epistle, and that's it, the gospel of God. Now he's going to expand on that. First, the gospel of God was promised in the Old Testament. So the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel is a message that God has promised. He didn't just prophesy it. It wasn't just predicted. It was promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, when God prophesies, when God predicts, it's the same as a promise because God can't be wrong. But I want you to know this wasn't just some, well, maybe this is going to happen and maybe it's not. When God promises you something, it's going to happen. Now, it might not happen when you think it's going to happen. It might not happen at the speed that you think it ought to happen, but it's going to happen. Now, the words... His, in this passage, uh, his prophets, in the word holy, stress the unique origin of the Gospels, or the Gospel. Notice that the prophets are called his prophets. These people didn't have their own message. These people, many of them, died and were persecuted while they were dying because they were giving someone else's message. But they felt strongly enough about it. They were convicted enough about it to speak the truth in love, even if it was going to cost them their life. And many of them, it did cost them their life. Paul is not speaking here of men of vision in general, like men who could read historical trends and then make predictions based upon that. And we have people that do that in business all the time. We're not talking about that kind of prophet. Those men are called prophets sometimes, but it's a very loose uh, rendering of the word. 
These are men who belong to God. They belong to God, just like Paul did, and were the vehicles by which his message became known to man. So all a prophet did, and if I could simplify it, and Elijah and Elijah might not appreciate me simplifying their work like this, but they got a message from God, and they told it to God's people. That's what pastors are supposed to do, pastor teachers are supposed to do. They get a message from God, and we don't hear it. We don't get a face-to-face, but we get it in the Word, and we tell it to God's people. We don't have a right to change it. We don't have a right to jazz it up. It doesn't need to be jazzed up. It's powerful enough as it is. We don't have a right to take anything out of it. Today, the biggest problem is people are taking stuff out of God's message. They don't want to say that God has anything to do or anything to say in His Word about uh, sexual depravity, for example, or homosexual marriages, or uh, how a military should fight battles, or how you should look at in exercising your right to vote. Sure, the Bible says a lot about that. You know, and you ought to be able to figure out who to vote based upon your spiritual life, not based upon anybody having to tell you. It ought to be fairly clear. And I'm not going to tell you how to vote in this voting season. Uh, I joked around about it the other night, saying you already know which way I'm going. I think you do, but, but you don't have to vote the way I vote. You vote what's on your conscience. And I think, if, I think we'll all pretty much come up the same way, but we might not. You, know, you have to see how God leads you in that way. But these were God's prophets who spoke God's message to God's people for God's glory. So the term prophets here in chapter 1, verse 2, shouldn't be understood in the strict sense of the word prophet like Elijah, Elijah, Moses. But probably Paul has in mind here all the Old Testament writers, all the way from Moses to Malachi. Anybody that spoke for God in the Old Testament was a prophet in terms of Paul's use of the phrase here. The authentic marks of true prophets and their prophecy are clearly stated in the scriptures themselves. The reason I bring up these six true marks is because there are people out on television and the radio that are calling themselves prophets today, and they're making prophecies. And one of the ways you can tell if they're a real prophet or not, if it comes true, uh, one of the silliest things that they can do is put a time limit on their prediction, because when they do that, they are boxed in. And some of the well-known ones have put time limits on their prophecies, and according to the Old Testament, they ought to be executed. And that's God's message, not mine. Uh, First, prophets were sent by God. I'm only going to give you one scripture. There are many, many. If you're interested, I'll give you the rest of them after the class tonight. But first, prophets are sent by God. We learned that from Isaiah 58.1. Second, prophets were to be received with faith and reverence. That's Luke 24.25. Third, prophecy has God as its author. That's Isaiah 44.7. I'll go over these again if you're missing some of them. Fourth, prophecy is a gift of Christ, Ephesians 4.11. Five, prophecy is from the Holy Spirit, John 16.13. In my favorite, prophecy can be tested, Deuteronomy 13.1-5. Now, if you're writing them down, I'll give them to you again. Prophets are sent by God, Isaiah 58.1. Prophets were to be received with faith and reverence. Luke twenty four twenty five. Prophecy has God as its author. Isaiah forty four seven. Fourth, prophecy is a gift of Christ. Ephesians four eleven. And I should specify in the context of Ephesians, I believe that's a that is a temporary spiritual gift, not necessary after the canon of Scripture was completed. 
5, prophecy is from the Holy Spirit, John 16, 13. And 6, prophecy can be tested, Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. In the English translation that I have before me, in verse 2, it says, which he promised, that's God, promised beforehand through his prophets in, in the Holy Scriptures. Actually, there's no definite article in the Greek text before Holy Scriptures. Um, this is unusual for Paul, actually, and, and by omitting the word the before Holy Scriptures, he's emphasizing the holy character of the writings. So it would be like it would sound like this: instead of the Holy Scriptures, it would be in Holy Scriptures. Do you see the difference? Instead of the emphasis being on the Scriptures, with holy just being an adjective describing that, the emphasis is on the adjective itself. In, in holy scriptures, in, in scriptures that were set apart, in scriptures that were uh, special in that sense. So no specific scripture is being referenced here. But Paul is stressing the fulfillment of the promises which had been recorded in the writings of the Old Testament. And he's stressing it that they must be received with reverence because they're holy. You see, there's, there's a subtle difference, but it's not in the Holy Scriptures or the Holy Scriptures. It's in Holy Scriptures. So this is real serious business. There are some slight nuances in the way Paul uses Greek in the book of Romans in order to make his point, and this was one of them. So, first, we understand that the gospel was promised in the Old Testament. Second, the gospel was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, who was the Son of David, as well as the Son of God. So Jesus Christ was fully human and fully divine. Look at verses 3 through 4 again. Concerning his Son. Now that concerning his Son is tied in grammatically back with the Gospel of verse 1. So Paul is telling you that the Gospel here is essentially about a person. Concerning his Son, who was born, one, of the descendant of David, according to the flesh, and second who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ our Lord being his full title. So in verse 3, Paul comes right out and tells us, the gospel centers on a person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was both human and divine. You can't take Jesus Christ out of Christianity and have Christianity. You can take Buddha out of Buddhism and still have Buddhism. You can take Muhammad out of Islam and you can still have Islam. But you can't take Jesus Christ out of Christianity and have Christianity. Jesus, Christianity without Jesus Christ is nothing. Because in its core, Christianity is about a person. Christianity is not about a philosophy. That's why we've got to be so careful to be Christ-centered. Not doctrine-centered, although I, I love the Word of God. The reason I love the Word of God is it points us to the person of Christ. I, I spend my life studying it and, and teaching it and absorbing myself in it. But remember, remember we're Christ-centered. And we love the Word of God because it points us to who we love. It points us to the centerpiece of the Gospel. And also, we wouldn't know that if it wasn't for the written Word. So please never misunderstand. I'm not in the least. I would never dream of putting down the written word. Not at all. I just want to make sure when we exalt something that Jesus Christ is at the top of the list, on the top shelf, he's on the throne. 
and then the truth that we have about him, we appreciate and love and we would die for because it reveals the one that died for us. Okay? Makes sense? All right. Christianity without Christ is nothing. It had been promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 that the line of the Messiah would come through him. We're not going to study that a lot right now because we're in First and Second Samuel on our Sunday night study and we'll go through that in due time. But the promise was confirmed in Isaiah 11.1, 1, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, and Ezekiel 34, 23 through 24, amongst other places. Isaiah 11.1, 1, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, and Ezekiel 34, verses 23 and 24, amongst other places. That Jesus was of the line of David wasn't ever really, as far as we know, wasn't ever really called into question during his lifetime. That wasn't what they had a dispute with him over. It would appear as though everyone was in agreement with regard to our Lord's, even his enemies, that he had fulfilled that part of the Old Testament, that he was of the Davidic line. And if there was any question, all they had to do was go to the temple and check, because the temple is where they kept the genealogical records of everybody that they could have tabs on in Israel. And it would have been very easy for someone to go into the temple, pull the records, and say, oh, well, wait, wait a minute. This guy's a Levite. He's not, he's not of the tribe of Judah. He's not of the tribe of David. And it would have eliminated him from messianic possibilities right then. But they never did that. So it doesn't look like that was ever called into question. What Paul's doing here is he's making sure we understand that the centerpiece of the promise, the centerpiece of the good news is a person who was a real person. It wasn't just a figment of someone's imagination. It wasn't just... A, like a theophany from the Old Testament, but he was truly human. Jesus Christ in hypostatic union was undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. Theologically, we like to put it this way, maybe you can memorize this at some point, but in the person of Christ are two natures, inseparably united without loss or transfer of separate identity. So it's not that his deity bled over into his humanity or his humanity bled into his deity where he's kind of half man, half God. That's not Jesus Christ. Don't ever define him that way. He was fully human and fully divine. Now, it's a mystery how that worked out. But don't ever make him half and half. That's what it means. That's what we mean when we say without loss or transfer of separate identity. Without mixture or loss of properties or attributes. So even his own attributes or properties didn't bleed over. Um, so verse 3 affirms Jesus' humanity. The text says, according to the flesh... Now, Paul will use the word flesh in a negative sense later on in Romans, but here it's not negative. It just means, as far as it's human birth, he was of the seed of David, which had been prophesied. So, according to the flesh can be understood as with regard to his humanity. He was born a descendant of David. That's verse 3. Verse 4 affirms his deity. So, verse 3 affirms his humanity. Verse 4 affirms his deity who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is one of those sentences that if it seems a little difficult for you, don't feel bad. This is one of the first major exegetical difficulties in the entire book. It's good. We'll just go ahead and get one of the toughest ones out of the way up front. And I think what it might be easier for me to do right now is to tell you what verse 4 is not saying. Okay, so listen carefully. This is what it's not saying. It's not saying that Jesus became the Son of God at the resurrection. Some people have misinterpreted that in, in understanding that this verse is telling us that Jesus was not the Son of God 
until after the resurrection. Now, you can see why they might say that. If you look at the verse, he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection. So perhaps that's an option. But if that was the case, <coughs> that would contradict a lot of other scripture. In fact, Jesus was understood to be the Son of God before the crucifixion. So what's Paul talking about here? He's not saying, though, that Jesus became the Son of God at the resurrection. Actually, Jesus was eternally the Son of God. But rather, this verse reveals that Jesus was, watch the terms, appointed or ordained the Son of God in power. It would look like this. Dash in power. I ran out of room here. But it's all one phrase. He was, he was ordained or appointed the Son of God in power. Okay. Track with me and I'll help you to understand this. Before the resurrection, Jesus Christ had voluntarily set aside the independent use of his attributes, one of which was his omnipotence. So, before the resurrection, Jesus experienced physical weaknesses in his physical body. He had set aside the independent use of his power, for example. Now, I think that he used it from time to time, for example, in calming the storm. But he didn't use it independently of the Father. It was in complete conjunction with the Father's will at that particular time. Now, I'm not saying after the resurrection he didn't. But after the resurrection, that veil was lifted and he was appointed by the Holy Spirit. He was The term declared is not the best translation. We do that, and translators use that, who is declared the Son of God, because everybody knows that he, he wasn't the Son of God only at the resurrection. He was the Son of God eternally. And so... They, wanna, they don't want to use the word appoint, although the horizo, the Greek word, means to appoint. So, but he was appointed the Son of God in power. Now, that's different than just Son of God. He was appointed the Son of God in power. Remember in Matthew 28 when Jesus says, All authority has been given to me, okay, post-resurrection. That's what Paul's talking about. After the resurrection, Jesus was appointed or ordained by the Holy Spirit the Son of God in power, as opposed, if we could say, and the text doesn't, so I'm going to be very careful here, but the implication is, before the resurrection, he was the Son of God in weakness. Okay? You see the point, you see the point that Paul's making? After the resurrection, this veil's been lifted, and he has been exalted and glorified, and now he's the Son of God with power. So it's a hyphenated understanding. And so that takes care of some of the problems that people have had in the past with this verse, thinking that it's, he wasn't the Son of God until after the resurrection. He was always the Son of God, but now he's the Son of God in power. He experienced weaknesses in his human body before the resurrection, but after the resurrection he was appointed to his full authority and power. He was appointed to his full authority and power, and that's the same thing that Matthew is saying in Matthew 28, 18. This appointment was done by the Holy Spirit. So we could say that by the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ has been exalted to this position of messianic power. Rather than having the weakness and frailty that he had before the resurrection, now he's the Son of God with power. All one phrase. 
Paul is affirming that the one who has always been God's son, but was brought by his human birth into a relationship with David, as far as the human nature is concerned, was appointed the glorious son of God in power, or son of God with power, from the time of the resurrection, and a fact that is testified to by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the gospel was promised beforehand. Uh, the gospel is concerning primarily a person, that person being fully human and fully divine. And finally, the gospel was offered to the world. Look at verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So the gospel was offered to the world. Paul re refers here to the fact that he had received special grace or a special grace gift of being an apostle. If you know anything about the apostle Paul, and that's why we spent some time with his biography last week, you know, he didn't think he deserved to be an apostle. As a matter of fact, he called himself the least of all the apostles. They didn't take a back seat to him because he knew God had appointed him. And if that's what God chose, then that's fine. You don't apologize for what God has done in appointing you. Like if, if you're a pastor, hey, everybody knows that you've got weaknesses just like everybody else. You know in your heart that you have no right to be up preaching the Word of God to people, but as long as you are, don't get up there and apologize for it. Okay? You don't have to be arrogant about it, but you don't apologize for it. And that's what Paul's doing here. He understands it's a grace gift. Through whom, meaning Jesus Christ our Lord, God's Jesus Christ, full title. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. The we here is probably like Paul's got a mouse in his pocket. You know, he's, he's probably speaking editorially. This is an editorial we. Um, he's speaking of himself here, and, and maybe possibly those who were with him. Paul did that sometimes, but make no mistake, Paul is the author of this letter. It wasn't like Paul sat down in Corinth and was asking Timothy and some other folks exactly, now what, what do you think I ought to say here? How do you like that sentence? Now, Paul is the author of this letter. Paul is the, is the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul does this from time to time, and he includes the whole group. And people do that all the time. It's even done in English today. But he's speaking of himself. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. The special grace of apostleship wasn't there just for grins. It had a purpose. It had a purpose. When Paul was appointed the apostle to the Gentiles, God had a purpose and a result in mind. The purpose was to bring Gentiles to faith in Jesus Christ. To bring Gentiles to faith in Jesus Christ. The result was that God would be glorified. Not Paul, but that God would be glorified. So this whole idea of Paul receiving apostleship had a, had a dual aspect. First, a purpose, the evangelization of the Gentiles. That the Gentiles would come to faith in Christ. And the result was that Jesus would be glorified. Paul says, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. This is the second difficult exegetical problem that comes up in this early passage. And uh, we can answer it fairly easily by understanding what grammarians called a, a genitive of apposition. And it should be understood this way. I think I can diagram it, and I think you'll get it right off. This genitive of apposition. This, I'm describing now the term, the obedience of faith. 
what Paul is saying here is that obedience equals faith. That's how those two genitives work. The obedience of faith, obedience equals faith. In other words, they're in opposition to one another. What's on this side of the equation equals what's on this side of the equation. So it could be understood as the obedience which consists in faith. Okay. So here Paul is using the terms obedience and faith, watch, as synonyms. Obedience and faith here are used as synonyms. This is not really new. Paul's really fond of using this terminology, and we studied it fairly extensively about a year ago. This was the subject that I spoke to the National Teaching Pastors Conference about last year. Remember we were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, uh, and Paul was talking about their being obedient to the gospel. And what he was talking about was exercising faith in Jesus Christ, but that was a synonym for that. To be disobedient to him or to be disobedient to the gospel. Or in Romans chapter 10, verse 16, he talks about their being obedient, obedient to the faith as well. These are synonyms the way Paul is using them in this verse. Obedience to the faith means to trust Jesus Christ for eternal life in Paul's terminology. What it does not mean, Paul is not saying that once someone is saved, they will continue to be obedient. We're talking about the initial act of obedience, which is saving faith. Now, people after they're saved may or may not be obedient. They have to make that choice hundreds or not, if not thousands of times. But this is what a genitive of apposition means. And you can dazzle your friends tomorrow by telling them you learned that. But if you do, you're going to miss the point tonight. Uh, the, the point being that, that if God promised these things and, and he had them come to pass, then when he promises you something, it, can come to, it will come to pass for you as well. But this is the, the reason. There's a purpose behind everything that God does. The purpose behind Paul getting apostleship was that so Gentiles would exercise obedience slash faith in Jesus Christ. Obedience to the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ, two synonymous terms. And then there's a result. The result is for his name's sake. When we pray, when you pray, your private prayers, I hope that you stake what you pray to God, the request that you make for his name's sake. I heard it several times tonight. People were praying for people and they say, Father, heal this person, please, and may you get the glory for it. May you be glorified. That's what Paul's saying here. When Gentiles are saved... It's for Jesus' name's sake, for his glory. So the whole idea of the Apostle Paul dedicating his entire life to this task is not just something for grins. This isn't something so that Paul could feel important. This was so the name of Jesus Christ would be glorified. Paul was Christ-centered. He was Christ-centered in the way he thought. He was Christ-centered in the way he spoke. And he was Christ-centered in the way he acted. And we would do well to follow his example. And be Christ-centered as well. In verse 6, Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Paul assured the Romans, and us too by extension, that they were part of the intent of the gospel. We were part of God's purpose and his plan. And I know there are some of Jewish blood in, in here tonight, too, Jew, people, Jews, who have trusted Jesus Christ for eternal life. And this is not a put-down to the Jewish believers at all. Paul's going to get to them later in the epistle. 
But he, he starts off by having everybody understand that he was specifically called to minister to Gentiles. Interesting, he did it through Jewish converts in almost every town he went to. But there's a purpose, and Paul wanted the Roman Gentile believers to understand that they weren't excluded from that purpose of God. The Jews always understood that they were part of the purpose of God. But back then, today it's kind of reversed in terms of the anti-Semitism and the, some of the evil things that take place. But back then, it was more the Jews who were looking down their nose at the Gentiles. We're part of God's plan. I'm not very sure about you. Uh, maybe, if you come crawling on your knees, we'll let you in. Paul's saying, none of that. The Gentiles were ever bit as much part of God's purpose as the Jew was. It just happened to come to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, Paul will tell us here in just a short time. So the desired response to the gospel message is obedience that consists in faith. Roman believers weren't called, as Paul was, to apostleship, but they were called to belong to Jesus Christ and to be saints, which was the common term that Paul uses to designate believers. So the term has almost the same force as the expression Paul uses for himself in verse 1, which says he was set apart for the gospel of God. There's a lot more to the idea of God's calling that we need to discuss, and it'll come up later in the book of Romans, and we'll spend a significant amount of time talking about that subject when it comes up a little bit later, but for tonight, for time reasons as well, that's where we'll leave this idea of God's calling. Now, finally, in verse 7, we get to the recipients of the letter. Almost, it's, it's all, almost as if Paul has said, done something like this. This is from, you know how you have these internet messages? From Paul. Uh, the subject, you know, the little subject line. God's gospel. And oh, by the way, this is to Roman believers. Keyword believers. This is not a book that was written to unbelievers. While the gospel is given in this book, this is not a, uh, like the gospel of John. The gospel of John is the only book in the Bible that has as its expressed purpose in the text the evangelization of the unbeliever. Romans is written to believers. Whereas John's gospel was written initially primarily to unbelievers, but believers can certainly and have over the centuries benefited greatly from, from it. Paul's letter was written to Roman believers and then believers of all generations since then. So verse 7, seven really continues the thought of verse 1. Verses 2 through 6 being somewhat parenthetical. And you can see that Paul took quite a bit of time to introduce his subject, particularly when he's going to cover it for about 16 chapters afterwards. The terms grace and peace were common salutations amongst Jewish and Greek writers, or Greek and Jewish writers, respectively, in Paul's day. In fact, if we were uh, walking in Paul's day and we met on the road, we wouldn't have said hello. I wouldn't have said, hello, my friend. If I had wanted to say that in Greek, the common greeting would have been, kairo pilo. Kairo was the greetings, or loosely we could translate that hello, but it, it would have been, greetings, my friend. Kairo opilo, or, or philo, if you prefer. Uh, you, you might hear the root of the city Philadelphia in there. Uh, greetings, my brother. Greetings, my 
friend or my loved one. And uh, uh, so when, when Paul uses a term like grace, this is a word that sounds very similar to the word kyrie. So Paul, in his genius, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, is taking a word that would have commonly been used, and he's Christianizing it. And so he's using it in a little different way, but now Paul's using grace as a greeting. So it's, I don't think we would do it because it would sound a, a little bit odd, but, but if I was to come up to you tomorrow instead of saying, hey, how you doing, if I was to say, grace to you, my brother, you know, it, it would sound a little bit Puritan or religious, so we would probably avoid that, but that's what Paul's doing. He's taking something that sounds similar in a similar situation, but he's adding a Christian meaning to it. And grace is also a concept that he'll unpack quite a bit in this letter, so we'll, uh, we'll just say tonight that it's both his unmerited favor and it's also his divine enablement to get some things done in the way Paul uses it in this letter. But grace is the basis for any true human peace. The second concept of peace, it's Iranian Greek, but it's the term shalom in Hebrew. And you've heard that term too, if you have any Jewish friends. Don't say that to your Arab friends. Ordinarily, they don't care for that. I did that one day at the gas station, and uh, I didn't realize that that's not, a, that's not a phrase that they particularly care for, and they explained it to me real quick. I got out of there real quick, too. But <laughs> Shalom is something you say to your Jewish friends. I've forgotten exactly how you change the translation for your Arab friends, but it means peace, essentially. But it didn't just mean freedom from stress, anxiety, or irritation, or a lack of war. It did mean those things. But it includes the fullness of God's blessing. This term shalom was a very rich term in the Hebrew vernacular, and it included the fullness of God's blessing. So Paul desired a continually deeper and richer experience of spiritual blessing for his readers, who we must remember as we study this book are believers. Paul's readers the original readers in this book are believers. In fact, that's nothing dramatically outstanding because if you've been through any of Paul's letters with me, you know that all of Paul's letters were written to believers. So if you ever have a multiple choice question, don't put down that any of Paul's books were written to non-Christians. They were all written to believers. So let me conclude real quickly with this application. Again, what God has promised will come to pass. He will be no less faithful to the subsequent promises that he's made to you as his child than he was to the primary promise that he made to allow you to become his child in the first place, and that's to send his son. God promised the seed of woman, the seed of the woman to Adam and Eve. He promised that the seed of the woman would ultimately conquer the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman who would be ultimately good would ultimately conquer the seed of the serpent who would be ultimately evil. He promised that 4,000 years at least, depending on how you date it, but at least 4,000 years before the time of Jesus Christ. But it did come to pass. 4,000 years is a long time to wait. I don't like to wait 4,000 seconds, 40 seconds for some. But they waited 4,000 years. Some faded away. Some gave up. Others held fast to the faith, understanding that what God promised, he's going to come to bring to pass. It did come to pass, and it came to pass in the fullness of time. In other words, it came to pass in God's perfect timing. And when God has promised you something, he's promised to take care of you, he's promised to rescue you, he's, he's promised to feed you, it's also going to come to pass in God's perfect timing. Just as God the Father brought Jesus Christ to earth, just like he promised he would, 
so also he's going to take care of you. Just like he promised he'd take care of you. So, Heavenly Father, as we go our way tonight, we thank you so much for the promise. We thank you so much for the, the person who is the central aspect of that promise, and that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and for the opportunity that we have uh, regularly to gather ourselves together and to learn about him. We thank you for your self-revelation and your word, and we thank you for that promise in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.